Kaboom! It's time for another episode of the Visitors Might Be Listening podcast with me, your host, Louis Ryan. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Mr. Mike Levito. Hello, hello. And boy, do we have two great episodes to talk about today, don't we, Mike? We sure do. Oh, I can't wait. Um, we have just so much to talk about. Let's start with episode three of season two of Apple TV Plus's For All Mankind, Rules of Engagement. Let's just dig right in. So, Mike, what's the big idea of this episode? Why is the title uh, Rules of Engagement? Well, in lieu of giving you a 10-minute synopsis of the episode this time, I'll, I'll start a little slower. So the big thing, what this episode begins with and what kind of guides the decisions made throughout this episode is that we see a bunch of astronauts going to begin mining operations on a lithium deposit they found on the moon. However, they find that all their equipment, some of it is missing, some of it is moved, and that there is now a Soviet flag flying over the site as opposed to an American one. The Soviets have taken the lithium deposit, and now uh, the White House and NASA and the military are evaluating their options on how to reclaim this deposit and we've, it's clear we've reached this sort of rapidly reaching a point of like space brinkmanship where the sort of territorial geopolitics of Earth are now being replicated on the moon. Yeah, you could say that this Cold War <laughs> is starting to cool off. Oh, wait, I said that wrong. But anyways, this is very bad news for everyone at NASA who doesn't know like what's going on or what they should do. And then they decide to take the most exciting approach dramatically and to start militarizing astronauts. Yes. Sending Marines to the moon. At first they say, we're going to send guns to the moon. And then they say, actually, we're going to send Marines to the moon with the guns because they are trained pilots and also know how to shoot guns. Yeah, then they should start sending tanks with the Marines with the guns because that's what I want to see. But yeah, our, our prayers have been answered and they've decided to start delivering on some of that unrealistic space action <laughs> so we so desperately want so yeah the title refers to what how does fighting in space work i mean we've seen it on tv and in the movies but like what is the actual practical like quote quote rules of engagement how do we do that so they've got to start working up like how how it's going to work like what are we going to do when you're on the moon and you need to confront somebody with a, a weapon in a military situation. Mike, I'm, I'm sure I know the answer to this already, but is there any uh, historical basis for military action on the moon? Any rules of engagement? No, and in fact, I believe there is actually, you know, it, it's certainly been discussed, and there have been some programs that, that kind of, like, explored the possibility of doing so. I mean, the closest thing you really ever had, and this was not on the moon at all, was... Reagan's Strategic Defense Initiative, SDI, also known as Star Wars. But as far as having military on the moon, we've never really come particularly close to having that happen. And I believe there's actually a series of international treaties that makes it very difficult for something like that to happen. We, we haven't had any uh, dirty Harrys on the moon with their 44 Magnum. We have not. In fact, apparently guns are actually more useful as a form of propulsion than, like, of offensive firepower on the moon because if you fire a gun in space you're going to get like shot backwards because of the lack of an atmosphere and whatnot so a tougher order than than one might think bringing guns to the moon you remember the movie the martian i do damon uh remember how it's like he has to like cut open his suit he says he's like iron man to like fly to the ship and save Mm -hmm. the day at the end or to get rescued like what if what if he pulled out like a gun and started 
blasting away in order to make sure Jessica Chastain rescued him. Would that be more exciting? I mean, it, it probably would be. It may have made that movie ineligible for the comedy Golden Globe. It's, Counterpoint, it, if, if Matt Damon started pulling out guns from <laughs> every single corner of the station, wouldn't it have been a funnier movie? I, you know, it, in some ways it probably would have, perhaps not intentionally. Anyways, everyone at NASA fails to realize the comedy of the situation of <laughs> how they need to start training space marines. They're, they're disturbed by, because it seems like the Russians have like inside information, mm-hmm. right? That's how they were able to swoop in and, you know, pull a fast one on the American military. Well, they, they sit around the, 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 the brains at NASA and the military and think how this happened. And then they realize, well, wait a minute. A cosmonaut was in Jamestown last season when Ed was having his kind of mental breakdown over both being stranded on the moon and, of course, the death of his son Shane. There was a cosmonaut who came looking for help and then eventually helped Ed get to the land and, and sort of like help set in motion that rescue slash salvage mission of Ellen uh, at the, in, in the finale. And you'll also remember in that scene that the cosmonaut, you know, turns towards the base and you see the base in the reflection of his, of his helmet. And so it turns out that he installed a listening device in the overhead lights of the Jamestown base that was listening to all of the astronauts' conversations, and most importantly, the code changes. They had this sort of encryption system that changed monthly, but because they were able to hear what was changing, the Russians got got hip to what the astronauts were discussing, which led to them eventually seizing the lithium deposit. What I thought was going to happen was that the cosmonaut was just going to flip over a couple lawn chairs (laughs) while Ed was away, but it turns out that he was doing the ultimate spycraft move, and they were able to get away with this for almost 10 years spying and listening into the uh, the americans in their private situation which i guess is is realistic because i assume stuff like that happens even though it seems like something might have happened within the last 10 years to give the americans a heads up but i guess not and it also it's a listening device in like the original section of jamestown base which is now Mm -hmm. like more built out and larger so it seems like oh they'd have to be discussing the code changes and whatnot in the original section but i guess it makes sense yeah i i didn't think too hard about it when i first uh first watched this episode i you know who knows how powerful it is who knows what kind of communications they had actually tapped into they never really discussed the specifics of the device just that it's there so um you know it could have been more advanced than we even realized at first the scene where they actually find the device mm-hmm. and they're like doing where they're like speaking in code yeah. over the uh, video conferencing and they have like a, a like a gun, yes. a gun that they have <laughs> that I guess finds spy devices. A metal detector in a metal place. Yeah. <laughs> but the important thing is that both times that I've watched this episode, I was actually like super invested in the conversation they were having because <laughs> they're talking about like movies that yes. they want to get sent up to the space station. Yes. I was like, oh, this is interesting, but it's like mm-hmm. just cover to find the spy device and it's like they weren't actually interested in watching any movies on the moon they very obviously want to see the right stuff the movie about the mercury 7 yeah they don't want to see mannequin no (laughs) yeah but the important uh emotional takeaway from this is that ed screwed up you know this was apparent to anyone watching the end of season one that you should not drag a cosmonaut into your space station tie them up hold them hostage 
talk to them about Frank Sinatra. Right. And Elvis. And then just leave them um, all alone with your space station. This will be more apparent at the end of the episode that Ed is sort of forced to confront the emotional state he was in mm-hmm. 10 years ago. And, you know, the emotional fallout from that, because it seems like he's been bottling in a lot of that stuff. But I guess we'll get to that yes. when we talk about the uh, emotional ending of this episode. But first, I, I want to talk about the next plot point, which is the return of one of Mike's favorite characters, Aleda Rosales. So, Mike, <laughs> tell me about Aleda. Yeah, so in the last episode, Margot received this kind of mysterious message that Aleda Rosales had called, and it kind of shakes her, you know, because last we saw between Margot and Aleda, Margot rejected Aleda's request to stay with her after her father was deported back to Mexico. Margot eventually tracks down Aleda. She's living in a mobile home in a trailer park, presumably somewhere near Houston, and says, hey, you know, I got a call from your boyfriend, Davey. And he said, uh, you are under Reagan's new amnesty program, which Reagan did actually have an amnesty program for illegal aliens. You know, if you don't get a job, you're going to be deported back to Mexico. And she's like, so why don't you come work for me at NASA? And Aleda, you know, it's implied she's had a rough go of it, right? She's been unable to hold down a job. She's been fired a couple of times. She may have set fire to a trash can in one of the offices she was working in, but she is still a brilliant engineer. And at first, Aleda is not receptive at all to Margot's offer. She thinks it's, you know, Margot showing pity on her. You know, they, they, they kind of relitigate what happened uh, 10 or so years ago. But by the end of the episode, Aleda decides to take up Margot on her offer, but also break up with her boyfriend, Davey. Oh, I don't know, Davey. <laughs> yeah, uh, so, you know, Aleda's returned, and... Um... I feel like she's actually, like, a character now. Yes, I agree. <laughs> in the show. But unfortunately, at least from this episode, it's kind of the um, Dr. House template of a character mm. where it's like, you know, I'm really good at my job, and I'm also incredibly difficult to work with. <laughs> I mean, do you agree? I would agree, yeah. It's a little annoying. I think she rounds out as the season goes on, and definitely in season three. But there is this kind of... It feels like they're trying to give this very kind of earnest arguably like square show like a bit of an edge by introducing a lady like she's kind of like a like like she's the closest thing any character in the show is to like punk rock she's got like studded bracelets on and stuff um but it is definitely dealing with this kind of yeah like you said dr house like archetype where she's like the difficult genius you know the 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 smart person who can't get out of their own way and who, who yeah like you said i think she she definitely improves in a major way in the next few episodes but right now it is just like well i've seen this before <laughs> it's and it's like margo's going out of her way to just be nice like the show doesn't margo's like really kind of doesn't want to yeah you know what i mean she's like of two minds about it but she like feels like she needs to make amends i guess for the last 10 years in a similar way to i guess it parallels what ed's going through where it's like forced to confront things that happened exactly at the same time <laughs> 10 or nine years ago yeah, pretty much. It is, and that's kind of a theme throughout these two episodes, is maybe not resolving so much as, like, returning to these big plot points, like you said, that happened 10 years ago, and putting them in a context that I think improves the storylines, makes them more relevant, and kind of vindicates a little bit of the focus on them in the first season, even though we kind of complained about it a lot. But we'll talk about that more as we go on. 
did you want to did you have anything to say about her breaking up with davy uh no outside of we never see davy again so sorry davy i mean it's kind of a weird thing where it's like she decide like the reason she breaks up with davy is because she had told davy i guess that she had never wanted to see margo again and yet he calls margo and she's like well i'm gonna take the job from margo but i'm not but i but i can't tolerate being around davy anymore because he like betrayed my trust which is a little bit of weird logic but i mean it, it, yeah. it gets the story moving it makes her seem incredibly egotistical yeah a little bit it's also like my boyfriend is more replaceable than an engineer at nasa <laughs> who has bad behavior it's like irony thy yeah. name is aleda yeah so i guess that's that and then uh there's a lot going on with tracy and gordo yes in this episode you know your your pal gordo mike how's how's he doing uh well he's not doing like great you know he's still not still kind of broken up about tracy's whole thing tracy is also like maybe not doing super awesome either you know we kind of see her waking up well past her when she has to get to jsc to to do her sim stuff and and training and we have yet to see mr sam cleveland yes we do i at first i was like when he was first introduced i was like sam cleveland like a real guy like should i know who sam cleveland is he's not he's fictional anyway but Gordo is, you know, trying to whip himself into shape, like literally and physically. He he can't fit into his suit anymore, his uniform. Like the zipper literally snaps off. He's just too big. Um, he doesn't. Mr. Incredible style. Yes, he doesn't know how to use a laptop, and he's just trying to reacclimate to the like active astronaut life. And he tries to tell Tracy, "Hey, like you know, I'm gonna be going back up to space." And he really wants to tell her this because Tracy will also be going back up to space and they'll both be at Jamestown at the same time. Kind of an awkward situation to be there with your ex-wife, who is now very famous, and your ex-husband's also pretty famous too, and you're not married anymore. Also, there was this whole, like, you know, space couple, astro-wife plot from the first episode. So what on earth are they going to do? But there are some tender moments between Tracy and Gordo. You know, we see... Tracy gets drunk at the outpost, right? Yes, she gets drunk at the outpost... She crashes her car into like a cow pasture, it looks like, and she's staring at the billboard of her in her spacesuit with the the watch advertisement she shoots the episode prior. So Gordo goes back and, and helps her out, drives her to their former home, his current home. You know, there's this whole scene where in, instead of going on the couch, she goes into the bed, so then Gordo has to sleep on the couch. And it's all kind of nice. It's like, ah, oh, they still kind of yeah. love each other. I thought that scene was going to go in a different direction. Well, yes. I th- <laughs> yeah, I think you're meant to think it's supposed to go in a different direction. Like, she literally leaves a trail of clothes up to the room. But thankfully, I would say, because it'd be, like, kind of a hacky plot point, I think it doesn't go in that direction. And the next morning, they have this very tense conversation about, you know, Gora going back up to the moon while Tracy's there. And also, you know, is, is Tracy... Is that still her house or is it Gordo's house? And it also leads to a confrontation between Tracy and Ed because, of course, Ed is, like, the big pusher behind Gordo going back into space because he thinks it's what's going to, like, save Gordo, basically. Yeah, it's the magical cure-all. Yeah. It's like if Gordo is Ra's al Ghul, then going into space is the Lazarus Pits. <laughs> that will rejuvenate him and enable Gordo to defeat Batman. That's one way to put it. Yeah, it's a flawless metaphor. Things are, are a little bit more confrontational between Tracy and Gordo. They're they're interesting to watch. 
definitely, as I said before in the last season, I'm definitely glad that they don't fall into like mad menish tropes in regards to the relationship. I feel like it's a bit more different. Yeah. You get kind of, it's like not certainly neither of them is an angel, but also like neither of them is a devil. It's not like you have Tracy as this like put upon wife. Who's finally free of her deadbeat husband. You know, you have Gordo who is obviously very, very flawed, has his issues, but is dealing with like some serious mental trauma. And then you have Tracy who, yeah, you know, she, she's, divorced him obviously he he was unfaithful and you know maybe that that was a good thing but she's also not you know there's a big question as to whether or not her heart is in this whole astronaut thing or if she's just a celebrity now and there's basically lots of implications that she's an alcoholic as too which gordo of course is as well so yeah they're they're both kind of they parallel each other a lot and they they i just think michael dornan and sarah jones her name is they just bounce off each other really well probably two of the better performers on this show it is interesting that gordo is like a character who is like he he got help and we're like seeing him like 10 years later and he seems to have like improved his life in in some ways so it'd be interesting because you know mad men obviously there wasn't a time jump of 10 years between seasons because that would be ridiculous because mm-hmm. um, Don would be like a, a head on a robot body <laughs> yeah. by season seven. Mm-hmm. So Gordo is like a character who has like sought out help from like a therapist and like made improvements in his life. So he did not continue down the road of being a mad man. Yes. Yeah. So I'm just, it's different than Mad Men. Um, a show that I, I keep, we keep comparing it to, even though when uh, this season started, the thing I was like, oh, this show isn't Mad Men anymore. It's the Americans. <laughs> I, that's, that's a good, uh, good comparison. Yeah. Cause all, all the 80s stuff and yeah. all the stuff with Russia. Yes. And Reagan. Um, it's so interesting that this show wanted to be like, it's an alternate history, but Reagan is still the president. <laughs> well, he, he's president four years earlier than he would become president. And with a different vice president, so, you know. Yeah, and it's like, but it's like, you can't diverge too far from yeah. our reality. Mm-hmm. It's like um, in the uh, late 70s, when um, Jim Shooter heard the story about two, the new writer for Captain America. It's like, I've got a great idea for Captain America. It's really going to energize it. It's like, Cap's going to run for president. <laughs> and then Jim Shooter's like, and then what happens? And then Captain America gets elected president. <laughs> and it's like, well, you can't do that, because then it's not reality anymore. Um, it's just funny. It's like, imagine if they just veered off and like someone like, I don't know, some reality TV show host got elected president instead of Ronald Reagan. That'd That'd be be crazy. Be very, very strange. Um, thankfully not a thing that would happen in real life, but yeah, that'd be super weird if like, I don't know, Ryan Seacrest or Howie Mandel or Padma Lakshmi became president. When was Jesse Jackson running for president? 1988 i believe oh so it's too late yeah i'm thinking like who's a good 1980 equivalent for like a crazy uh dark horse left field candidate yeah there was that's larry hagman i'm sure (laughs) um the guy who did lifestyles of the rich and famous robin leach yeah he was british though so that doesn't really work does it (laughs) that would be crazy maybe pat sajak who shows up in the next episode we've covered the stevens is is so now we can go to the uh, Baldwins' house, mm. where uh, we have Kelly, who's, uh, you know, Kelly has seemed uh, fixed on going to Annapolis. So she really wants to go to Annapolis. Um, 
and tells her mother that she really wants to go to Annapolis in favor of going to American University, a fine institution that produce, produces wonderful podcast hosts, we must say. Um, and judges. And like judges. Judy. Yes. And bone analysts. Like bones. Did bones go to American? Yeah, I believe so. I remember there were bones posters everywhere. Oh. I Temperance had... Bones Brennan. Let's see. She's based on Kathy Reichs, who Yeah, she graduated with a major nineteen seventy one from American University. I had no idea. I didn't even realize Bones was based on a real person. Well, it's like loosely. I mean, yeah. But I, I don't think she really went on eleven years worth of adventures and like her partner <laughs> also got into an adventure with Stewie Griffin from Family Guy. That, that would be crazy. That would that would be very strange. Yeah, so she says she wants to go to Annapolis. Initially, Karen is resistant to it. And then Kelly's like, no, you know, I want to serve my country. I want to fly. I want to do what my father, Ed, did. And Karen's like, well, your father's going to be so happy. And it uh, turns out that was a really huge misreading of the situation. But, yeah, uh, so this was an interesting left turn that caught me completely off guard. Mm-hmm. I assume you were caught off guard as well. I was, yeah. I mean, it, it began to make some sense as it played out. But yeah, it was definitely a bit of a blow up. So what happens is, is Ed comes home, they're cooking. He's like, oh, this must be a special occasion. It's like, yeah, Kelly has her number one school and it's Annapolis. And he's like, wait, you're serious? And she's like, yeah. And he's like, no, you're not allowed. And she's yeah, like, it turns out Ed's not a fan of the uh, James Franco film from 2006, <laughs> Annapolis. Because he just blows up. He's like, no, I am the head of this household and what I say goes. And then Kelly's like, no. It's like, then then I'll just enlist and then I'll go to Annapolis as a naval uh, private. And then it's like, well, then you can pack up your bags and get out of the, my house, young lady. And it's like this big thing. And then Karen's like, no, Ed, don't try to run away. You have to stay here and talk to us about this because we're the Baldwins, darn it. Yeah. There was, how did you feel about this scene? Because for me, I kind of, I appreciate what it was trying to do and what it was trying to do with like the characters' relationship. But there was something about it that felt like a little acting class to me. Like it felt like it was written like for like people to practice in an acting class. (laughs) Like that's just kind of the vibe I got from it. Like it just felt a little too... Oh, these people on this TV show, they're so dramatic. <laughs> I don't know. It just felt like things were like a little, like, it almost felt like the dog was like a little too direct. It, it almost felt like they were literally like just saying their characters' motivations out loud. It felt kind of like group therapy-ish. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, it felt like a big explosion Yeah. of emotions. I liked it. I liked the scene, actually. It caught me off guard, but I, I ended up liking it. Ed is... uh Well, I mean, he was reserved in season one, but he also would blow up a lot. I mean, this felt like, you know, a purging of all the emotions in one setting. So uh, I liked it. Yeah, I mean, again, I didn't think it was awful. There were just parts of it that felt a little, like, creaky to me. But I do think it is interesting, like, to take this scene in with the Tracy and Gordo stuff because it is, you know, when we arrive at these characters in the beginning of season two, all of them except for are depicted as like doing pretty well right tracy's married again she's rich and famous ed is love and life 
as the playing head, golf playing golf head of astronaut yeah. the head of the astronaut office karen has a purpose now she's owning she owns the, the outpost and both of them have a new have a new kid they're very happy about molly has cancer danielle's Whoa. husband killed himself <laughs> i i'm specifically think thinking of the two primary couples on this show <laughs> eventually these old conflicts from the first season bubble up again right you know these people have worked on themselves like you were saying about gordo but these but the work that they've done the things they've achieved have not been a panacea for these pre-existing conflicts these clashes in personality and these seemingly irreconcilable differences some of them have right it, it's still a sort of lingering issue that will play out throughout the rest of the season i think what makes it work is that it's like about shane mm-hmm. who you know I complained about how he didn't get enough screen time with Ed <laughs> in season one. Uh-huh. Ed sort of, you know, needs to break down, confront, you know, like I said, the consequences of everything that happened 10 years ago, like Shane dying and then his uh, confrontation with Sergei Rushinov and the uh, <laughs> Jamestown base 10 years ago. And I'll just kind of spews forth. And then Kelly, you know, presents him with the Popeye doll mm-hmm. and Ed, you know, breaks down and then they you know, accept Shane's death and they accept Kelly and, you know, they move on. And it's like a big group hug moment. Yeah. The Popeye doll, which she finds in the vent in her room, which used to be Shane's room. She finds a bunch of his old toys that he stashed there. Mike, was the Popeye doll in season one? I don't, was it? I actually don't remember. Are you um, like actually asking me, do you know the answer? I'm legitimately asking you. Cause if not, then I'm going to say the writers did an epic fail. <laughs> Zero out of 10. Nice try writers. A, I'm not buying a, it. a cinema sin, if you will. <laughs> Ding. Well, I, I'm pretty I, sure it was not. Yeah, I don't think it was. But it is, I mean, you know, the, the symbology of Popeye, a sailor. And what, what links his family together? The Navy. So, there you I go. I don't get it. Well, what are you saying? Can you explain? Yeah, but, it, you know, it's a nice uh, emotional way to end this episode. I agree. Well, and the way it also ends, and the way what it actually ends on is uh, Gordo sort of reading up on his mission, doing some studying, and then he turns off the light in his room, and he sees a blinking red light like the one he saw on the moon that first kind of began his descent into madness. And then he turns the light on again and realizes just, I guess that's a VCR or like a cable box. Yeah, yeah. Um, something normal. Yeah, that's that's near his I think TV. it was probably just a blinking red light machine that Gordo I, had bought from the Sharper Image. That could be. Um, they were all the rage in 1983. And then he kind of laughs to himself and, and turns off the light again. He's like, oh, this doesn't bother me anymore. But does it actually? Is there something that could set Gordo over the edge? Tune in next week to find out. Yeah, well, I mean, the writers kind of tipped their hand when they showed the, the POV from the red light, and it's the Soviets watching from their lab in Russia. <laughs> They're watching Gordo sleep. Yeah. Turns out that the listening device followed Gordo to Earth. And somehow found its way into his laser disc machine or whatever that was. Yeah, that would be cool if they had a laser disc machine. And then um, it was just like Gordo flipping through some laser discs. It's like Star Wars. He's like throws in the trash. Close <laughs> Encounters throws in the trash. Alien throws in the trash. E.T. E.T. Gordo like is like, hmm, not bad. And then he throws it in the trash. <laughs> but yeah, Gordo seems... He's being very cautious, very nervous about having another mental breakdown again, mm-hmm. which is more than I can say for some of the astronauts that have been in NASA 
over the past few years. And now we can talk about the next episode, right, Mike? <laughs> we sure can. The next episode is... Well, it's interesting how this episode starts. Oh, one thing I wanted to say is that I think we should take a break. That sounds good. Yeah. So let's take a break right now, and then we can dig into episode four. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. If you're a fan of the Postwriters articles, podcasts, and projects, be sure to sign up for our newsletter. So once a week digests of everything we've worked on, what the site is up to, and other things we'd recommend each Monday. We don't believe in subjecting you to daily annoying emails, but we do believe in keeping our most passionate and loyal supporters in the loop on what we've been up to. We know how inconvenient and annoying it is to have your inbox flooded with constant reminders and useless material. That's why we run a curated weekly newsletter that gives you a once a week scoop. New subscribers help us know how many people are reading and listening to our work and want to hear more from us. So go to thepostwriter.com slash newsletter to sign up now. All right, everyone, we're back. One thing I wanted to say before we dig into episode four is that these two episodes we're talking about today was actually directed by someone named Mr. Andrew Stanton. So, Mike, I don't know if you're aware about who Andrew Stanton is, but he's like one of the key guys at Pixar, famously hmm. directed uh, WALL-E, Finding Nemo, Finding Dory, and the other Disney film, John Carter. <laughs> and he's also directed some TV as well, namely... A couple episodes for, for All Mankind. Like I said, he's directed the two we're going to talk about today. He directed a Better Call Saul episode. And he, I, I think you're a big fan of him because he directed uh, two episodes of Stranger Things. Oh. Yeah. So I, I think he does, you know, an excellent job, you know, directing. You know, I'm not going to say it's like these two episodes reshook the idea of television direction. But, you know, he does a fine job. And if, you, if you're if you someone who's never seen any of Andrew Stanton's other work, go go check him out. Yeah, that's 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 quite the resume. Are, are you a fan of WALL-E, Mike? I, you know, I've really only seen it once. I feel like I would like it. I saw it when I was in, like, high school. I feel like I would like it more if I watched it again. I thought you were going to say I would like it more now, knowing that it's in the Criterion Collection. Oh. <laughs> I mean, maybe I would. Sniffing my own farts. Yes. Mm. All right, so let's dig into episode four, directed by Andrew Stan, and also written by David Weddle and Bradley Thompson, two key writers from Star Trek Deep Space Nine. So this episode is Pathfinder. So Mike, this episode follows the immediate fallout from the Baldwin family confrontation from the last episode. So what's going on there? So we open on this episode of Karen Baldwin making breakfast for her husband, Ed, and he says, she says, hey, I've got some paperwork for you to sign. And he's like, oh, what's this? We're canceling our cruise to the Bahamas? And she's like, yeah, because you're going back up to space. And he's like, wait a minute. I thought I made those decisions. I don't want to go back up to space. And she's like, no, I can tell based on your outburst yesterday that you have to go back up to space. That this is something you have to do, need to do. It's the only way to make you whole again and all of that. And she's like, you know, you don't have to worry about me. Kelly will be at school. I'll be running the outpost. You know, it won't be like leaving Shane and I like he did before. 
There's a problem in this show where everyone talks about going to space as if it's like going to the store. <laughs> you know, Karen's like, you got to go to space. And it's like, what? Yeah. It's like I did the same thing to Gordo. It's like, hey, this is a big deal. <laughs> yes. Yeah, this is this is a, a, a life-altering decision he makes. But he does end up making the decision. He invites Gordo and Danny to the outpost to say, hey... I am going to go on Pathfinder, which they I feel like they kind of tease a little bit. Basically, Pathfinder is this sort of like innovative nuclear powered space shuttle that's supposed to it's supposed to be kind of like a dry run for Mars, right? It's supposed to take a lot of time off on their eventual run to Mars, and he will be the commander of that mission because that's one of the perks of the job. You get to make yourself commander of whatever mission you want. Yeah, you left that out that it's like he appointed himself the commander, similarly to how Deke yes. appointed himself the commander and how Dick Cheney appointed himself <laughs> George Bush's running mate. Yes, this is and true. And I'm sure there's other examples of that that uh, people can let us know about if they write to us ever <laughs> at our email address. But hey, you know, I'm not bitter. But Mike, tell, tell me about the real-life Pathfinder, if you can, if you dare. <laughs> yes, the real-life Pathfinder was very different. Um, it was not a nuclear-powered space shuttle. In fact, it wasn't actually a space shuttle. It was just a, uh, a simulator, a simulation of a space shuttle uh, that was made out of steel and wood, just used, you know, for various tests, really for actually mostly, like, uh, not, not even, like, flight tests, but for, like, literally, like, dry-running, like, how much space do we need to wheel a space shuttle down a runway, you know, how would a crane grasp onto a space shuttle and things like that. And now it's actually on display at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center in Huntsville, Alabama. After that where of, Werner von Braun is? I, I just may be. That, that's the real Pathfinder. It looks like the Pathfinder in the show. Like, it's got the same kind of blocky or relatively blocky design. But it is, uh, it is, it's not flight capable. I mean, I guess, no, it's not flight capable. There's, there's no engine or anything. Um, we, we talked about this briefly, but yeah, but now Ed, Danny, and Gordo are all making the return trip to space. Their narcissism knows no bounds. They will be making the giant leap for all of us, but mostly for their own self-interest. Mike, who does Ed partner up with to go on Pathfinder? Well, at the beginning of this season, we were introduced to a fellow named Gary Piscotti, who is this young frustrated kind of nervous astronaut who was very upset that he had not gotten the chance to go into space ed walks up to him puts a navy hat on him because gary is an air force i was gonna say veteran but he's not a veteran i believe he's active air force they kind of like rib him and humiliate him a little bit and he's like you're gonna be right next to me on pathfinder so it's very exciting for gary and then also real life astronaut sally ride will be joining ed in his flight as well what yeah but as we were talking about before recording, it's kind of like a blink and you miss it. So like, they, they don't say her name very clearly until later in the series. And they meant, they do say her name in this episode, but it's like, it's a little hard to pick up. Yeah, if you're one of those eagle-eyed people that read uh, the credits well, yeah. at the end of every episode. If you're one of the people that deliberately stops Apple from autoplaying the next episode and then <laughs> reading the credits, then you'll find out that this is actually Sally Ride. Which I didn't realize until the season was almost over. And I was like, oh, what? We also find out that Ed uh, has named his replacement as head of the astronaut office, namely Molly Cobb. Yeah, so let's talk about that. Okay. So, you know, Molly's taking one of her baths. Yep. And um, she's smoking dope. (laughs) 
uh weed's probably the more modern way to say it but yes <laughs> she's smoking a jazz cigarette yes and um, wacky tobacco yeah it seems like she's uh, you know taking it real easy mm-hmm. and she has sunglasses on that will be important later on in this season but yeah she seems like she's just chilling ed just kind of walks in while she's taking a bath <laughs> And he's like, you're just kind of leaving the door open. She's like, oh, I've got a gun right next to me in case anything weird happens. And he's like, okay. And he says, hey, you know, I'm going to go up to space. I want you to be the head of the astronaut office. And she says, absolutely not. I have no interest in having a desk job. And he says, well, you know, you're on like a six-month medical hold from going back into space. But once that six months is up, guess who gets to decide where you get to go to space next? You, if you take this job. And she's like, you sly son of a bitch, I'm in. And yeah, that's how she becomes, <laughs> that's how she gets his job. <laughs> yeah, so Molly's Molly's in charge of picking the astronauts now. Mm-hmm. After, you know, getting uh, cancer, obviously, from uh, saving Wobo. And Mike, I believe you had something you wanted to mention about Wobo. Yeah, we didn't mention this on the podcast because I didn't know about this until shortly afterwards. But Wobo, who who oh, is, is the astronaut that Molly saves, which, which exposes her to the deadly doses of radiation and also him to the radiation was actually a real guy there was a dutch astronaut named webbo ockles he of course was not exposed to lethal amounts of radiation in space he actually passed of a heart attack in 2005 he did he did have cancer as well though but again not not from being caught in you know a solar storm yeah he he was just a guy who you know went on some missions with nasa he was the first dutch citizen in space later became a professor and yeah, real guy. Just just one one of the many real figures who who appear on this. So he show. became a professor, then he got cancer. He he had cancer, but not related to his space travel. Oh, excuse me. And I was wrong. I said he died of a heart attack. He did not. He did die from cancer in 2014, not 2005. I misread that completely. Yeah. So it's yeah. like they gave him cancer, and he decided to start cooking meth to provide for his family. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yeah. I mean, they both, both he and Walter White had a mustache, so. Someone with that kind of mustache doesn't make good life choices. Yeah, so I just wanted to make sure we got that that mention in. Once again, the show, it, I like the way, like, because I complained about, like, how they wove in, um, what was the Chappaquiddick girl? Mary uh, Jo Kopechny. Yeah, I was complaining about that because it seems like very obvious mm-hmm. history to play with, but it's like, then they have stuff like Wubbo mm-hmm. and Sally Ride, they just slip it right in front of us and i don't even notice it's like oh this is very nice uh assuming the audience is intelligent which is good it's not underestimating our 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 lack of intelligence or overestimating our lack of intelligence yeah i would agree i think the 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 panama subplot which becomes a bigger thing later on the season is also another example of that because i think it's probably not something a lot of americans think of is, is panama being like kind of a flashpoint in american foreign relations which I watched this season for the first time either while I was reading or shortly after I was reading Reaganland, which is a book about Ronald Reagan becoming president. But it's also in many ways a book about the Carter administration. And of course, one of Jimmy Carter's lasting foreign policy achievements was giving the Panama Canal back to Panama ahead of time. And that was actually a massive, massive controversy in the United States at the time, right? It's actually more or less what Reagan like ran his he basically ran an anti-Panama Canal campaign. It was like a huge organizing point for a lot of conservatives. And I, I, I like that this show kind of incorporates that being a thing and also shows that, you know, 
Panama could have become another Vietnam if we didn't do what Carter wanted us to do, which is just another interesting kind of, you know, uh, alternate history path that goes down. And like I said, a, a pretty intelligent one, I think. Yes. Show very smart. Yes. We, we like. Because it makes us feel smart, too. Yeah. Well, it's just telling us what we already know. Yes. That we're smart. Yes. And so, yeah. So Molly's in charge of astronaut candidates now. Ed will be stepping down, but before he does, we need to talk about Danielle and her storyline. So Danielle, obviously a widow now, visits uh, Clayton's sister to give her some trinkets from Clayton. Clayton took his life. So what's what go, what's going on there, Mike? Yeah, she gives him like you know old like report cards and birthday cards that he got from his mother and stuff. His sister, I believe her name is Ray gives Danielle one of his medals from Vietnam. Of course, when we're first introduced to Clayton, we see him throw his medals at the sentry as they're leaving the base he's dropped off at. He's clearly not happy about what's going on in Vietnam, but he keeps this one medal. And Danielle and Ray have this very tense conversation about Danielle still wanting to be an astronaut, basically. Ray is kind of of the opinion that Clayton was influenced by Danielle to join the military, to serve his country, that that was always kind of her thing, and he decided to follow suit. And of course... Unfortunately, like many veterans, especially Vietnam veterans, she feels that he has been kind of chewed up and spit out by the United States government. You know, she says that if the money that go went to the space program instead went to better counseling services at the VA, then maybe Clayton would still be alive. She basically kind of, it's kind of, in a way, it's, <laughs> we keep talking about Breaking Bad. Like, it's almost like the, kind of like a reverse, like, uh, I did it because I liked it conversation. Where I feel like Ray is basically telling Danielle, you do this because you like it. Like, this is, this is, you do this not because you feel like you're, you're fulfilling a higher purpose necessarily, but because you like doing this and it's a thing you want to do and you like being an astronaut. But then she also says, you know, you're, she basically calls her a token. Um, she says she's still riding the back of the bus in NASA. And this influences Danielle to take some action and demand she have a commanding position in a mission and not just be, you know, a non-commanding astronaut yeah danielle really believes that it's like they can uh, do something she i would say is actually like sort of championing like the idea behind the title of the show which mm -hmm. obviously gets dropped in this episode that like you know once we go into space we can achieve this sort of like star trek like utopia where everybody on the planet gets along yes. and we'll be able to go out and seek new life and new civilizations and where horrible aliens will do terrible things to us um, <laughs> like a horror movie um, but we'll manage to overcome it because everyone on earth works together there's a drunk scotsman and a funny russian guy and a weird space alien who likes logic but yeah so danielle has this conversation she realizes that ray might have a point that like sort of like the unfinished business from season one where she had to fake well, I mean, she really broke an arm, but, like, she had to fake the circumstances on it to help out her, her good old pal Gordo. And they need to, like, make up for, the, like I said, unfinished business, as does Gordo. And as does Ed, in a way, as the last episode proved that it's like he failed, in a way, because, like, he broke down, let the Russian in, and kind of helped betray the United States to Russia for the last ten years. <laughs> Which, you know, is, again, like, an epic fail. So, yeah, they all have their reasons to, like, want to go back up into space so danielle confronts ed in uh his office on like the last day before he's about to jump into like his last meeting mm -hmm. as the astronaut candidate guy 
Yeah, so Danielle's like, I want to go into space, right, Mike? Well, I mean, she was already going to go into space. She was going to go in what they call Jamestown 91. So she's going to go back, but she wants to be a commander. She points out that there are, like, I think, believe 205 astronauts, only 11 of whom are black, only one of whom has ever commanded a mission. And she wants to be the first, uh, I believe, black woman to command a mission. Ed's like, these things take time. Yeah. Well, and he's also, like, first black woman to command a mission. Like, that's a thing now. It's kind of, like, it's funny because I remember I, I mentioned when we were talking about the first season and the latest whole storyline how it felt in some ways like a, like a kind of political reaction to the political environment. You know, in the Trump administration, immigration was a hot topic. I do feel like in some ways this is maybe a little bit of a reaction to, you know, the George Floyd protests and Black Lives Matter. The season aired in 2021, so that was definitely fresh in people's minds. But I think it's integrated much more into, like, the main plot than the elitist storyline was in, in season one. But yeah, it, it's interesting just, like, the idea of, like, Ed... Like, just Ed's whole thing about being, like, this is, like, a thing now. Like, you know, th this is, like, a milestone now. Like, I feel like there are definitely people who probably said that about, like, Kamala Harris, right? Like, first, like, black vice president. We had a black president. Like, this is a thing now. Like, you know, like, that's a milestone we care about. And it was it was interesting to watch it play out on this show. Yeah, well, I mean, there's also Warren G. Harding. Whoa. <laughs> 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 it's, uh, that's a deep cut <laughs> of, of, of a... Somewhat inside joke. <laughs> but yeah, Google Google what uh, John McLaughlin thinks about Warren G. Harding's, or thought, John McLaughlin's no longer with us, thought about Warren G. Harding's ethnic background to, to find out what we're talking about there. <laughs> well, it's just like the Colbert joked. It's like, what does he say? John McCain could be our first, or was it Mitt Romney could be our first white male president? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, well, I mean, there was Charles Curtis, right? Who was? Yes, he, he was a Native American. And was our vice president under Hoover. Um, yeah, so we, there's some stuff for you to Wikipedia, guys. Look that up. So, you know, Danielle's ready to be a commander. Ed's like, I'm about to go into this meeting. So Ed's coming in this meeting hot. <laughs> Everyone's like, congratulatory, like, Ed, it's your last day. We're so happy. We got you a, a, a ring ding. <laughs> or, a, you know, a, a cupcake. And they put a yeah. candle in it. And Ed's like... He just pushes it aside. Well, it's like he uses his binder to just, like, slide the tray <laughs> out of the way. Yeah, he's like, what do you want me to do with this? <laughs> it's actually kind of funny. And then uh, Tom Payne's like... This actually catches Ed off guard a bit. Because they're like, the Russians have agreed to the uh, handshake in space thing. Mm -hmm. And they're like, well, we need to find someone to, you know, be the commander to actually, like, do the handshake. And Ed's like, what about Danielle Poole? And Tom Payne's like, what? Yeah, he does uh, not love the idea. Yeah, well, it's like, and then it's like, you know, I think it's time. And then Tom's like, yo, you know, I agree. You know, we're, it's ready. But, you know, the president. <laughs> yeah. Oh. I, I'm not racist, but the president might be racist. So they discuss that a bit. Everybody kind of comes around to the idea. There's like uh, the one scene where, oh, what's it? Bradford, right? Who's like the Air Force general who is also black, turns to Tom and he's like, I think it's a good idea. And they also discussed this this scene, like how they're going to pull off this handshake in space, because they obviously don't want to give the Soviets any information about their current technology, especially the space shuttles. So what they realize is we actually have an old Apollo capsule laying around, and the Russians already know everything about need they need to know about the Apollo capsule. So why don't we just use that to link up with the Soyuz and, and complete this mission instead? Basically just to remind everyone who was watching the episode not very closely basically they all tacitly agree that danielle's 
great for the handshake in space. Yes. They managed to convince the racist Tom Paine <laughs> the racism of his ways, and Danielle is appointed to uh, to do this historic, uh, you know, mission, um, which we will follow in the next episode. So Danielle's got her her basically her mission for the rest of the season now mm-hmm. to do this handshake in space. Ed's you know appointed himself the Pathfinder commander, and we obviously are following Gordo. Gordo is a little bit more complicated because like he's a bit unsure of you know everything. We see him at the outpost with his son. He's just trying to enjoy wrestling. Mm-hmm. Sergeant Slaughter is about to come in and beat the crap out of some guy. Yeah, out of like a Russian wrestler. Yeah. Mike, do you know Sergeant Slaughter? Um, I I'm familiar with him as a concept. I'm I'm not I'm not a professional. He's the only expert. person, quote unquote, person to have a GI Joe character based on himself. <laughs> so there is a GI Joe character called Sergeant Slaughter that is played by Sergeant Slaughter on the show. I I had no idea. It's I feel like it's a very '80s thing, just like a a wrestler who looks like Arlie Army and who fights. Yeah, he looks like a you know a drill sergeant. Yeah. Yeah, so what what happens at the outpost? You know, Gordo's trying to enjoy wrestling. You know, Danny and uh, Mrs. Baldwin talk about wrestling a bit. They seem to have, like, a chummy friendship going mm, on. Don't they? Yeah, and, and they're, uh, they're, they're, they're... Gordo's drinking some Pepsi. He's eating some kind of food. And all of a sudden, he sees ants crawling on his Pepsi can. And he starts to freak out because, of course, what had happened when he was last on the moon was he was hallucinating ants inside of his spacesuit in the space station... And that was a sign he was cracking up because they had the ant farm in space that cracked. And so he thinks, oh my God, I'm losing my mind again. Then Karen comes over with the bug spray, sprays it all over Gordo's food and drink <laughs> and, and kills the ants. And so he realizes like, oh my God, I'm not losing my mind, at least not now. The ants were real, but I st- they still triggered a reaction. And this was, of course, preceded by Gordo um, testing out the new spacesuits. And he's fine until they put the helmet on him. And then he begins to have a bit of a panic attack. He starts to make up excuses. Yes. He says about he has like, to. Oh, yeah, you know, I've got some meetings that I have to get to. I've got to get out of this because I'm going to want to go to the bathroom. Yeah. So i got to get out of here. I had 15 tacos right before this. So <laughs> I, need to, I need to go. I need to get out of here right now. He says, yeah. he says I'm not going to go in the bag. Anyways, Gordo tells Ed about this. They're at the Air Force Base. And Gordo's like, Ed, you know, I'm struggling. You know, I seem to still have my sanity intact. But... <laughs> I'm, I feel a bit nervous about this. And Ed's like, oh, come on, Gordo, you big pansy. Why don't we go get you in a, a fighter jet right now and we'll do some pretend dog fights? Yeah, because they're, they're flying to Florida, I believe. No. Or... Well, Ed flew to California, but he came back, right? Well, they're flying where they're flying to. And yeah, like you said, they, they, they do like a like a, a mock dog fight, you know, and Gordo's getting his mojo back. He He kills quote-unquote ed but then all of a sudden uh the engine in ed's in ed's fighter jet bursts basically there's smoke coming out of it and he is forced to eject and we, the last thing we see is is the waters below that he is he is plummeting towards yeah so you know what's gonna happen to ed i don't know tune in next episode to find out yeah what did you think of this ending mike i think it's pretty effective you know um I, it's a pretty you know, it kind of hammers home this the these these themes of like recklessness and and, and kind of like American ad, ad, adventurism and, and and things like that. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I thought it was pretty effective. I mean, I guess it's well made. I didn't I didn't particularly care for it. I mean, I it's 
I guess it's an ominous foreshadowing mm-hmm. in a way. You could interpret that like the fates are trying to send our characters a sign. But I'm not really a big fan of when the show ends its episodes like this, you know? The cliffhangers trying to quote-unquote trick the audience. Like when episode, it was episode three of season one, right? When we had the limb disaster. And we th- think Tracy might be dead, but it's actually someone else completely. Yeah, there's a lot of stakeouts. Yeah, so I'm not a big fan of that. I wish the show would just end on scenes that aren't like cliffhangers or about like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do now? Just have, you know, Ed explode in the jet. <laughs> we see his skeletal charred remains fall out of the, the ship or, you know, or just don't. They Just show them land safely. Just very sh- carefully show Ed pushing a button to lower the landing wheels. Ed lands, unbuckles his seatbelt, gets out. And he's like, wow, okay, I am safely back on Earth now. (laughs) Cut to credits. Yeah, those are the two options, I guess. We have this kind of thing that's in the middle. Yeah. And, you know, spoilers, Ed's not dead. No, he's not. This would be a a much more notable episode and a much probably shorter show if Ed did die. Yeah. Um, It'll be fine. And I'm glad. I I don't want to. I'll save what I was going to say for the next episode. Yeah. yeah, so that that's our two episodes for this week. Mm-hmm. They're both very good. Again, um, like we are approaching the point when I think this show really takes it up a notch to become really, really good. Like we've introduced the idea of, you know, the Soviets and military intervention on the moon. We have some nice scenes reintroducing characters like Aleda. We get some, you know, renewed motivation from our main characters about like why they're going to space, what they're going to do exactly in space. And um, we actually get this really nice moment, I think, in episode four between Ellen and Tom Paine that gives Tom Paine some depth, where he's just like, no, I'm not a political stooge. I actually believe in going to space, you know, from a young age. He, like, bought a telescope and, you know, looked at the stars. And it's like, oh, I guess you're not just a huge racist. (laughs) Yeah, he talks about how he actually lobbied Nixon and then Reagan to get that job. He wasn't just appointed. He wasn't just a favor somebody was giving him like he actively wanted to be the director of nasa um we also we should mention too as far as ellen goes i'm sure the scene that was your favorite is you know uh she she comes home i think shortly after that conversation and uh finds larry and his boyfriend talking about what the best scorsese movie is larry thinks it's uh the king of comedy although i would argue up up until that point it was probably raging bull but whatever anyway and she doesn't go with them to the drag bar they're going to, but she does go through her moon mail, all the mail that was sent to her while she was on the moon. And in it is a package from Pam, the bartender from the first season. And dun, it dun, is dun. a book of poetry she has written, and it has the note, try and guess which poems are about you. And so Ellen has, you know, her, um, this you know, very career-focused kind of notes to the grindstone, Ellen, all of a sudden, this romantic complication has returned in her life. Yeah, it ter- seems like in the time between the seasons, uh, Pam has gotten a master's degree in like English literature and, and has become a poet. So, yeah. Mike, I wanted to ask you, is this <laughs> is this character re-railment? The writers realized they had made a horrible mistake with this character, and now they have to you know, do somersaults to legitimize the character of Pam and why she is so great in the eyes of Ellen? How does this read to you? That's an interesting way to put it i mean like now now that i think about it like pam's characterization is pretty thin in the first season we know she's a bartender we know she's in love with ellen that's kind of all we know 
we, we don't really know many other details about her life. Yeah, for a five-year period, she seems to be the only employee at this outpost yes. bar. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah <laughs> that is actually very true. I, it read to me as more of just like a, you know, I think they just really want to explore the whole like LGBT angle of it. And how do you, how do you like in, in this time period in American history where people are pretty hostile or certainly more hostile than they are now? You know, how, how do you sort of maintain your ambition while suppressing this part of yourself? Can you do it? Should you do it? And that's kind of the struggle that Ellen goes through both in this season and in the third season especially. When I, I saw Ellen going through the mail, and mm-hmm. then when I saw who the letter was from, I was like, no, 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 <laughs> no. I should re-edit that scene and add in, like, scare chords. Yeah. Like, from Psycho, like, eh. <laughs> The the the, 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 the Jaws music as she's slowly getting to the package. Not thrilled with um, the return of this character. Mm-hmm. And I, I knew if you had like asked me, it's like I think they're going to bring back Pam and they're going to have to make her a super genius, which um, is what ended up happening. But yeah, I guess we'll see more of that. And that's when the season really gets great when Pam comes back, thrills us, and the show takes a slight whole turn into being about like poem writing industry, poetry. <laughs> yep. What sells, what doesn't, is rhyming in, is rhyming out. Tune in next week and we'll find out. Oh! <laughs> that was clever. So, I'm Lewis Ryan. You can find me on Twitter at, at the Lewis Ryan and on Letterboxd as well, where I give my thoughts on recent movie releases. Although not really a whole bunch of thoughts, but you can find Mike uh, as well. Right, Mike? Yeah, you can definitely find me on the Letterboxd. I write about music, movies, politics... You can find me on a number of different podcasts there as well, including Pony Express, where Lewis and I have our Fortress of Ineptitude series, where we talk about sort of forgotten comic book movies, as well as Politics Express, where you'll, you'll never guess it, I talk about politics. Yeah, and you can contact us, I believe you may have said this already, but contact at thepostwriter.com, find me on Twitter, at Emlevito, letterboxed, at Ameramike. Please write us an email. Yes. Somebody out there, please. And or, or at least a package with your book of poetry. We don't care how bad the poetry is, but anything. We'll take it. We're starving for some correspondence. R- write ten poems about yourself, and we'll try to guess which one is about you. <laughs> yeah, because we don't know you. I mean, like not like that. You know us, apparently. We'd like to get to know you, but <laughs> yeah, no one's written to us. Yes. It's like Mike and I are at prom, and we're the only two people here. <laughs> <laughs> sure. I mean, it's like we, we managed to sweep the prom king and prom queen election, but if there's no one around to celebrate and be our subjects, then what's the point? Anyways, I think Mike and I have run out of material for today, so I, I think we're going to wrap it up. So tune in next time where we reach the midpoint of season two and things really, really get good. Take my word for it. So tune in. We'll see you next time, everybody. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Lars Emerson. And I'm Mike Levito. And we're the hosts of the Post Writers podcast, Watching Mates. It's our podcast in which we explore the trends in film under each post-war presidency and reflect on how presidents and the zeitgeist of the era shaped the movies of their time. So be sure to check it out wherever podcasts are found or on thepostwriter.com.